Thanks for checking out the Lakeshore Podcast. If this is your first time listening with us, we want you to know God loves you. We want for your hope in Jesus to be renewed and for your faith to come to life. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope this message encourages you. And let me remind those of you that have kind of been a little sporadic or maybe this is your first time here. We've been in a series uh, called The Public Place. And we're talking very pointedly about the fact that everybody who is a Christian, everybody who accepts Jesus as their Lord, part of our relationship with Christ comes with a calling to be a witness. Jesus said it to his first disciples as a fisher of men. And, uh, but along with that, what we don't often catch is that Jesus made a promise He said, I get it. I know that you didn't sign up to be a witness. You didn't sign up to fish. For some of you, that's terrifying because you signed up because you had some things you really were desperate for God to do, starting with forgiveness and a clean slate, but moving all the way throughout your life. You you wanted him uh, to to heal and restore and and, uh, and to upfit so that you could be everything that you want to be and that he's called you to be. We get that. Jesus got it. So Jesus attached a promise and he said that I'm going to make you as followers of Christ, I will make you become a fisher of men. And it's very much the same conditions of all the other promises that Jesus is going to do the restoration. Jesus is going to do the healing. Jesus is going to do the the, the refinancing. Jesus is going to do the rebuilding of relationships on and on and on and on. We don't have the pressure to do that ourselves with just a spiritual veneer. We're literally coming to him because we can't. And it's the same idea that he had in this whole idea of becoming a witness. We may not like it. We may not want to. Our temperament and personality, maybe bad experiences have said that's never going to happen. But the ask that Jesus is making is that we would trust him enough. Would you open up your heart and let me do something from the inside out? that would recondition that. Maybe it would stimulate, rechange your appetites and help you to understand that it's so important that you're involved in this great commission. And it's important we talk about this because statistics will say, in fact, we could do an informal poll right here if we were in a very vulnerable and honest mood and hands would go up all over the place. The point is that most Christians don't witness. They know, everybody knows it's important. Everybody knows we should be doing this. But most Christians, they don't for a variety of reasons. Some of it has to do with our flesh. And we contend with this all over our Christian life, right? Our flesh, there's a part of us that does not want to do what we don't want to do, ever. Sometimes we don't want to do it when we don't want to do it. Sometimes we just don't want to do it because we don't want to do it. But, but the, the Lord comes in and says, but I'm going to help you from the inside out to be able to overcome that self-centeredness, that selfishness that, by the way, is holding you back from being who you want to be. And so part of that, it comes into witnessing. We can't escape the fact that witnessing at times is going to come with that little defining moment. Are you willing to kind of take a baby step forward and take a risk? Or are you going to stay in the habit of taking a step back? 
And the flesh always says, nah, that's kind of awkward. That's kind of risky. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Let me take your personality. Let me take your temperament. Let me create opportunities that are manageable for you to take tiny little baby steps, little by little, and learn to get out there and let the light of Christ shine through you. And the Bible says, as you do that, Jesus will begin to grow and strengthen, and he'll make you become a fisher of men. This is what we've been talking about. And if you missed any of this, you can get the videos on our YouTube channel. You can go to our website, uh, you grab our podcast, because it's really, really important. Well, today we're going to look at the fact that witnessing is not meant to be a solo endeavor. And for some of you Bible students, as soon as I say that, you're probably recalling instances in the Gospels where Jesus sends his disciples out two by two. And that's absolutely true. That's valid. Not what we're talking about today. Today, I want to talk to you about how the, the church is God's collective witness and how it's really important that we understand what Jesus was promising when he stood on a mountain with 12 guys and he said, I'm going to build the church. And the gates of hell will not be able to stop this from going and from growing. We need to understand what, what are you talking about and what does that really mean? I might think I know what it means today in our culture, but what did Jesus mean? What do the scriptures mean? And you see how, how intricately that this is connected, and, uh, and it'll help us to understand some things today. In fact, we're going to look through at Matthew chapter 16. We're going to go through an eight-verse narrative there where Jesus literally was unfolding the, one of the most significant moments in the history of mankind. He's announcing this eternal construction project that he's going to launch, and he's inviting the first crew into this. And we're going to look at that today, and we're going to see four things that we can pull out of that that will help us to add another ingredient, another element, so that the Lord can shape us to become fishers of men. I have to warn you, I did this the first service, and I don't think I realized just how passionate and how preachy I got. I'm more of a teacher, not a preacher. But for some of you that have those old, you know, traditional Pentecostal or Southern Baptist roots, I may not disappoint you today because I'm a little preachy. I just want you to know that, all right? But I'm going to tell you, when I get a little preachy, I get a little out of my comfort zone. And so I need you to reach back and I need you to give me the amens and the hallelujahs to keep me going. Otherwise, I start thinking, uh, is, are they buying into this or not? And uh, so I need some help. So we're going to go on an adventure together, all right? All right. So I'm in Matthew chapter 16. We're going to start at verse number six, 13. I'm in the New King James Version, and it reads this way. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now, I want you to stop right there. You've probably never stopped there before. Every time you've read it devotionally, you may not have ever heard a message that stopped right there. But I think there's enough significance right here that we stop because something later on in the passage is going to jump out, and all of a sudden we're going to say, oh, wow, that was like super relevant to these disciples as they were listening to that. And it all has to do with this area of Caesarea Philippi. We find out that it's a very lush little region uh, just at the foothills of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon's important all the way back from the children of, Israel, children of Israel coming through because Mount Hermon was the mountain that, that, uh, that proved as the, the northern borderline of the promised land, and it's literally the fountainhead where the Jordan River begins. 
And historically and scripturally, Mount Hermon keeps popping up, and it's obviously a really important spiritual focal point, not just for the Bible or for the people of God, but it seems to have a spiritual focal point in in the grand scheme of, of, of the spiritual dimension here. In fact, before the Israelites got there, the Canaans deemed Mount Hermon as their place, their prominent place for worshiping the god Baal. Of course, when the Israelites came in, they're like, tear all that stuff down. God's the only God of the Bible. And and so they did that, and the Lord began to bless. Well, then the Israelites have a real spotty history, right, of of drifting into idolatry and then coming back to the Lord and drifting. And so you see Mount Hermon show up, tear it down, build it back up, tear it down, build it back up, tear it down, build it back up. And yet at the same time, throughout the Psalms, Mount Hermon is always mentioned in a very passionate and, and a very demonstrative way about how it reflects a place of refreshing a place of consecration to the Lord. In fact, one of the most famous is in Psalm 133, where David compares the the, the lushness of the greenery and the refreshing vegetation on Mount Hermon to what it's like to be in a church that is functioning like it's supposed to, that's in unity together, and the Lord's presence is flowing, and the love of God is moving. It's like you walk in from a dry desert, and you just get a long drink. You just get so saturated that you walk away feeling refreshed. David said this, this is, Mount Hermon was a representation of that. Now, by the time we get to Jesus's ministry, This had become a place, again, of idolatry, but not to worship Baal. It was a center for worshiping the Greek god Pan. And the Greek god Pan was the god of nature. It was the god of shepherds and flocks, kind of all things organic there. It was the god of this rustic music that carried with it deep emotion, but sensuality. And all those things were there. And in the cliffs of this really tall mountain, they had carved out these cave-like temples and shrines. And they were worshiping the God of Baal there. In fact, the whole pagan world considered, and here's where you need to clue in and remember, the whole pagan world considered Mount Hermon and the worship of Pan there to be the gateway to the underworld. Or we might know it from scripture as the gates of Hades, the gates of hell. Because they believed that during the winter time, that all of the fertility gods would come there and would congregate, and based on what was going on there, would, would affect how they, they, uh, they experienced fertility in crops and with livestock and in their own families. And so, in those shadowy, dark sanctuaries, the most detestable acts... I mean, things that were perverted, things that were immoral, even including bestiality would take place all the time as a worship to these fertility gods, false gods, hoping that they would then turn around and allow their crops and their animals and their lives to be fertile for the remainder of the year. That's the place where Jesus decided that he's going to stand with 12 guys who had no idea what he was talking about. And say right here in the middle of the most disgusting, deplorable, detestable, debauched activity 
I'm going to build a church. He, he didn't go to a temple that was polished. He didn't go to some nice, serene, religious place where everybody lived on a kind of a moral standard and there was a, you know, an unspoken code of conduct. We're all just in this together, live and let live. He went to one of the, the, the activity centers that was known all over the, uh, the occult world, and this is it. And he said, yep, right here. He said, I'm going to build the church. And he said, watch what's going to happen. When I build this church, the very forces, the very gateways to the entry of the underworld will not be able to stop the penetration. And we're going to completely flip this thing upside down. This is what Jesus was saying. And the fact that he's saying it at that location was very intentional, very strategic. But let's kind of finish reading. It says in verse number 13 again, I'm sorry. Yeah, in verse number 13 again, it says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So try that tomorrow morning just for fun, right? Go to your jobs and, and go to your, your schools and meet with your, you know, your cohorts and your groups and say, hey, before we get started, let me just ask, what are people saying about me? <laughs> You're probably going to hear Nothing. Only one talking about you is you, right? So, but that wasn't an egotistical question. That was a legitimate question with Jesus because there was lots of buzz on the streets about him. At this point in his ministry, he's garnishing crowds of up to 10,000 plus. I mean, he's doing miracles. I don't mean just, you know, the common cold or the COVID virus is disappearing. I mean, people that had amputated limbs, arms are growing out. I mean, this is phenomenal stuff. Not only that, when it's lunchtime, he's finding a Happy Meal and feeding 10, 15, 20,000 people and saying, by the way, who's going to be on the cleanup cruise? Here's a large basket and, and gathering a dozen or so fragments. I mean, he's doing stuff that people can't explain. And so there's lots of buzz on the street. And let me just tell you, overall, some people loved him. Some people were like, hey, I, I don't know, you know who this guy is, but love when he comes into town. Love what, what the results of this thing are. Some people were just intrigued. And they kind of showed up because they're just trying to understand what in the world's going on. And then there was a religious group that absolutely hated him. But Jesus starts and he says, but who do you say that I am? And the disciples come up with some really strange answers. If you're just kind of reading along, you're like, what are they talking about? It says in verse 14, so they said, some say you're John the Baptist. Wait, what? Because I've been reading in my life journal devotionally, and we just found out a short time ago, John the Baptist was killed. I mean, he got, had his head cut off, right? And Jesus grieved about it. It wasn't a secret. It was part of what was going on in the disciples' life. And so somebody says, some say you're John the Baptist. What? What? But they go on and they said, and some say you're Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Well, those are Old Testament guys. Those guys lived like over 500 years ago at least. You're like, so what are they talking about? Reincarnation here? What's going on? And, and if you would have understood the day, it's like, no, 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 that, that's not what they're proposing. What they're saying is, listen, there's a lot of rumors. People are comparing you to some of these great and these godly men. Everybody knows that you're from God. But after that, it's anybody's guess. Nobody, nobody really knows what's going on. And so Jesus was, was kind of uh, uh, helping them there. And then Jesus narrows the question and he asked the most important question of all time. And by the way, you might be here this morning and you might be wrestling with lots of questions. Maybe, maybe you're inside the faith and you're trying to understand or, or maybe you're kind of not quite in yet and you're like, yeah, you know, I hear about all this Bible stuff, but, but to be honest with you, I mean, if God's love, then why are there starving people in the world? 
I mean, if God's sovereign and he's really the Lord and God's in control, then how come, you know, the governments and the politics and the wars continue just to march forward? Why is that the case? In fact, if God's word is really God's word, it's really inspired and it's true, then how is it possible that it was written over thousands of, of years by all these different people and yet it's still God? And listen to me, those are great questions. You should be asking those questions, and they should be answered. You should be leaning in and finding solutions to that. But let me tell you what, that's not the primary question. There's one question that stands way above every other question, and that's the one that Jesus asked in, John, in Matthew 16, 15, when he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, this was a question that just caused all of them to lean back. I mean, think about it. This was one of the most significant moments in history. One that the disciples certainly didn't realize that 2,000 years later, we'd still be talking about. They were just having a conversation. It was just like their own crew, right? And Jesus is introducing something here. But this was that kind of moment where, you know, if, if you're in a cinema, that the music stops and all the angels kind of, you know, just freeze in motion and everything goes silent as the camera just pans, you know, each of the disciples' faces slowly and you can see all the looks and the expressions until it gets to the one disciple that nobody thought would be the guy that answered the question. Verse number 16 says, and Simon Peter, and you're like, what? It's not that that's shocking if, you, if you've tracked with Simon Peter because Simon Peter oftentimes was the first one with his hand up right? And then you say, Peter, what do you think? Oh, I, I, I don't know, but I, but I was the first one to put my hand up. I just want that on the record. And he, he never knew what he was talking about. Every once in a while, he'd get it right, you know, but most of the time, he's impulsive. He's impetuous. He's just in a, a, a constant contest to be bigger and better and faster than everybody else. But on this occasion, Peter is profoundly right. And listen to what he says. He said, and Peter, Simon Peter answered and said, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And, and if you study his character, you can almost hear his thoughts inside. I know what his mouth is saying, but inside you can almost hear his thoughts. I don't know how I know that. And please don't ask me any other questions how to support it because I can't even explain that to you. But in this moment, I am absolutely convicted to my core that Jesus is the one and the only Christ, the Savior of the world. And there's this kind of awkward, you know, I don't know how long the moment was, but Jesus rescues Peter and everybody else by saying, let me explain what just happened. And all the disciples were like, oh, good, because there's no way Peter came up with that. <laughs> right? And so Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And if you've been here for any length of time, we, we love to come back to this word revealed. It's probably one of my favorite words, especially when you delve into the Greek language. It's the word apokalupto. And it's a very picturesque uh, language. It really shows like you walking into a room and maybe there's a big bowl on the table with a lid on. Everybody's like, what's in the bowl? What's in the bowl? And you take the lid off and everybody's like, oh, oh, you know, it means to take the lid off something to reveal what's inside. 
Or another picture is you could be in a room and there's this heavy drape, you know, that, that's on the wall. And someone comes in and says, hey, let's let some light in here and pulls back that drape. And all of a sudden, not only do you get the light penetrating the dark room, but you get to see there's a lot more going on on this property than just what's happening in these four square walls. And so the word revealed means something is intentionally disclosed, but it wasn't through a study process of yours. It wasn't because you got really smart all of a sudden. Some, something literally pulled back the curtain and you got to see something you didn't know before. Here's another really important thing uh, about why we look at how the word was formed is because this word apocalypto always, always, always shows that whatever's pulled back and revealed is something that's going to help you to step forward and progress into something else. You're stepping out of something and you're stepping into something else that's going to help you to move forward, that's going to enlarge or enrich something in your life. In fact, Romans chapter 1 verse 17 uses this and it's kind of a, a almost a theme description for what it's like to live the Christian life. This is what Paul wrote in verse 17, Romans chapter 1, for in it, and he's talking about the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Well, this, this word revealed, apocalypto, literally means that when we're opening the word of God, when we're opening up our hearts to the Holy Spirit who promised to come and teach us, there's lots of times where we're reading through something and he's going to pull back the curtain and we're going to understand what that means for our life or what God meant for us and it's going to help us to take a step out of where we're at, out of our current thought pattern, out of our current situation and take a step into something that God wants to teach us, wants us to understand and more importantly wants us to experience. In fact, Paul wrote again about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, and he said, this is what the scriptures mean. When they say, no eye has seen, he's talking about our natural eyes. It's not something you can, you can arrive by, by just being observant. And no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him, verse 10, but it was to us that God revealed, apocalypto, pulled back the curtain. It was to us, these are his children, these are Christians, revealed these things by his spirit for or because his spirit searches out everything and shows us the deep secrets of God. Now, the reason I took this little side journey for help you to understand Revelation because it's, it's going to show you something about how God's created you and I that we have to understand. And that is that you've got a part of you in your spirit. Some people that, that don't walk with the Lord call it your gut. But the Bible identifies it as your spirit. You've got a part of you that can understand things, that can, can grab onto things, that can accept things as truth, that can begin to act on things even when there's no tangible evidence that that's the thing that you should do. You just know that you know that you know. And this is especially prominent with Christians. In fact, let me just walk you through some things. And for some of you, you're going to prove to yourself, you're going to be your own witness that this is true in your life. Even if you're listening to me right now, you're like, ah, I'm trying to track with you, but I'm not really sure. Okay. Not a trick question. Uh, but I, and I, so I love a show of hands. Okay. How many of you believe with all of your heart, you're convicted that God exists? Okay. 
I'm not going to take a formal poll. Maybe one or two of you are like, eh, I don't know. But, but for the most of you, hands were high and, and you're really good. Okay, now in the natural, don't get super spiritual on me because there's always a few people that want to get super spiritual. In the natural though, you believe that God exists. How many of you have seen God with your natural eye? Before you answer, the Bible says no one, okay? <laughs> like Moses came really close. Moses came really close. Moses was begging, I just want to see you, I just want to see you, I just want to see you. And God puts Moses in this little indentation in a mountain, and God says, okay, I'm going to walk by you, and I'm going to put my hand in front of your face so you can't see anything, and then just as I'm about to disappear around the corner, I'll take my hand away, and you can see like the back part of my robe. And that's exactly what happened, and because of that, Moses' face was glowing like he'd been radiated for I don't know how long after that. Okay, but nobody in the natural has seen God. One day when we get to heaven, but not today. Okay, but listen to me, you still believe in him, right? How many of you in the natural have sat down to Starbucks or had lunch, sat across the table, looked him in the eyes, and yeah, me and God had a conversation in the natural, and the answer is nobody, not anybody, not talking about hearing an audible voice, not talking about the reality of the voice on the inside, the inward witness of the Holy Spirit. Those are legit things, but those are what, what we're talking about. That's the spiritual thing, not the thing you can naturally prove. And yet, even though you haven't seen him, even though you haven't literally talked to him, even though you haven't you know, reached over and shaken his hand, listen to me, you believe with a conviction on the inside that God is real. How'd you get there? And you feel that awkwardness, right? When somebody knows, how do you know he's real? Well, let me tell you why I know he's real because <clears throat> I just know. And, and that, that's really where we're all at, right? Okay, let, let's, one more just so you don't think I just pulled one obscure because there's so many of them. You can go and ask yourself questions. But here's another one. Uh, how many of you believe there's a real heaven? Let me see your hand. All right, good. Hope you're all going there. But, but here's the question. How many of you, and, and this is not trick, okay? How many of you believe that one day you're going to actually live in this place called heaven? You can raise your hand again. Okay, put your hands down. How many of you know somebody that already lives there? Yeah? How many of you are looking forward to meeting that person again, talking with them, connecting with them? Yeah, yeah. The older I get, the more people I know that lives in heaven. And, and I'm getting more excited every day because this is real to me, okay? But listen to me. How many of you in the natural have ever visited heaven? Ever thumbed through a brochure? Got plans to spend a couple of weeks in this summer there and then come back and let us all know, she, you're fine, glow and tan. And No, the answer is no. But listen to me, but you believe, you know that you know that heaven exists because there's a part in us that God can pull back the curtain and we can understand something even if we can't explain it. In fact, let's just keep going. We'll talk about God and we'll talk about heaven and our believing that those two really exist. What if someone come and said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you $10 million to not believe that anymore. Not possible. I mean, you can say you don't believe it because it's $10 million, Pastor. But it's really not possible for you on the inside to rock that core belief, except for the New Testament talks about 
the fact that we can apostatize. We can literally turn our back. And that, even that's a process. You have to callous your heart. You have to work really hard to get the voice of God completely extinguished and for your mind to go dark. All this is described in Romans chapter one. But eventually, if you work hard enough, you'll get there where all that can be erased and you can say with a conviction, don't believe in it. Don't believe in it. But you have to really intentionally want to do that and you have to work really hard to the point that God will say, okay, you know what? I've tried as hard as I can. I'm not going to fight you on this anymore. If that's what you want to believe, I'm going to let you. But for, for, for all of the rest of us, even if we have our doubts, even if we're a little shaky sometimes, we don't lose the real conviction that Jesus is who he says he is, that God exists, that heaven exists. These are things that have been revealed to us we don't know why we know them, but listen to me, you can threaten our lives, you can take our head off, you can take all of our finances away, which by the way is being proven around the world right now as we speak in an accelerated pace. Has ever since the day of Pentecost, the church has been terribly persecuted, but there are people that will stand before the Lord and the Bible says there are special rewards for those that it didn't cost them just inconvenience. It didn't cost them just the discipline of being consistent. These people literally paid the price with their lives. They paid the price by watching their families threatened and, and torn apart. They paid the price by being humiliated and ostracized and publicly made an example around the world. This is happening right now as we speak. But not to us, thank the Lord. But my point is that this revelation stuff works and we all know it. And so Jesus then turns around when we're talking about this revelation. He said, Peter, you didn't get that on your own. You're not that smart. You're not really a great student. But listen to me, the, Holy, the heavenly father opened your eyes, pulled back the curtain, and you know something that is literally life-changing. And then he says something very, very strange to Peter. He says, and I also say to you that you are Peter. Now, we might get a little confused because a few verses earlier, we were already identified it was Simon Peter that answered that, but that was for us, right? Because the gospel was written years after the resurrection of Jesus, and most people knew the apostle Peter by Peter, not by the name that he was called by the disciples at the time, which was Simon Barjona. And so Jesus said, this is it. This is the moment in history. This is so significant what happened that I'm going to change your name from, from this point on. And all the disciples are like, what? And he said, no, no, I'm going to change your name. I'm going to call you Peter, which in the Greek is the word Petros. We might say Rocky. I'm going to call you Rocky from now on. Because this truth that, that has been dropped into your life has created the first cornerstone of a, of, of a solid, concrete building foundation that you can stamp your foot on now. And from this point on, everything else can be built. So he said, you've received the truth from the Lord. And when you get those from the Holy Spirit, they will solidify something in your gut that not rationale, not circumstance, not pressure, stress, not other people. Nobody can take it away from you. That's solid. And he said, so I'm going to call you solid, or I'm going to call you rocky from now on. And he goes on, he says, and on this rock, but he changes the, the word now. It's not Petras, it's Petra. And this is significant because Petras is a little tiny piece, a little tiny chip that's been taken off the giant foundational boulder 
that, that's just immovable and solid. A little tiny chip's broken off and that becomes Peter or Rocky. You've got a little piece of this solid truth. But Jesus said it's on this giant building block of never changing, irrefutable truth that I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, he's not saying I'm going to build my, my, my church on Peter, although some versions of Christianity, they kind of lean that direction, right? Peter's a saint and Peter's to be talked to and worshiped and prayed to because the church was built on Peter. That's not even close to what Jesus is saying and none of the rest of the scripture supports that. What Jesus is saying is the revelation, the concrete knowledge that's been given to you, Peter, that has solidified something on the inside of you only comes from the Lord. It only comes from you opening up your heart to the Holy Spirit and opening up your mind to scripture. And when that happens, he'll drop a truth in there that you can stand on and build your life on and depend on for the rest of your life. And nobody can talk you out of it unless you let them. And this is what he was saying right here. That's why Jesus said, I'm going to build my church on revelation knowledge. That's truth number one. I told you you got four of them. Truth number one, Christ's church is built on the revelation of Jesus. Now, this is super important in our Christian culture, the Americanized Christian culture. Because listen to me, the church is not built on organization, although we have to be organized. The church is not built on socialization, although we hope that you can find people you relate with and you can build you know, friendships and, and do life together, but it's not a social club. Uh, the church is not built on humanitarianism, although we want to be tenderhearted with compassion and, and reach out and meet the needs of hurting people. That's a very high value, but that's not really what the church is built on. Here's the biggest shocker when you stop and you look at the American church. The church is not built on inspiration. It's not. I mean, it's great to come to church, right? And, and you get some good philosophical uh, uh, points and you get a few, a few psychology things to put in there and you walk away and your mind feels a little bit at ease and you feel a little better about yourself and a little better you know, about what's going on. But that's not what the church is built on. Hopefully you are inspired, but you're not inspired because of techniques and of methods and of six steps and five steps and three steps. You're inspired because of a revelation that Jesus Christ is who he says he is that he's still alive today, that he wants to be involved in our life and he's faithful, he'll do exactly what he promised he would do. Jesus said, that's what I'm building my church on. Do you know why you can find statistics everywhere that says the church is dying, the church is dwindling? Well, first of all, because that, that's the spirit of the age that's doing it again, what he's tried to do over the history of time. He's trying to squash out the church. But second of all, because a lot of the American church at least is being measured by a religious approach to Christianity, not at the actual church. Because I can tell you right now, if you dig deeper into statistics, those churches that are preaching the word of God, that are open to the power of the Holy Spirit, they're not shrinking at all. They're not. People are leaning in, people are getting fed, and this is working just, that, just the way it's supposed to. And so this is really important because, because we, you know, we're understanding, listen to me, if, if, we, if we believe in heaven and we believe in hell and we believe in eternal destinies, then we have to let those things be real. In fact, uh, I, I saw a short video, uh, Pastor Spencer recommended this to me, and I went and looked at a short video. It was probably made about a decade ago, so it sounds like it might not be relevant, uh, but it was made by a guy named Penn Juliet. Some of you that are older might recognize him. He was a famous magician and an actor and, and a musician, but he was also a very outspoken, staunch atheist. 
And he made a video one time. It's about six minutes long. You can find it on YouTube. And, uh, and he tells a story about he was in this club doing a show for, I don't know, it seems like about a week. And one of the guys there, I don't know if he was a grifter or a stagehand or whatever, but he was just part of the crew that was helping to keep the show going. And on the very last night, Penn Juliet's signing autographs for people. And he notices this guy out of the corner of his eye standing in the corner. And he said what he calls hovering. He's seen it before. People are just waiting till everybody leaves. And, and so sure enough, when everybody's gone, this guy kind of, you know, meanders over and he says, hey, listen, I just wanted to tell you, it's been such a privilege to work with you. I think you do such a great job and love some of your examples and illustration. Your magic tricks were, you know, were outstanding. And he said, and, uh, and I wanted just to give you this. And he hands him a, one of those tiny pocket Gideon versions of the New Testament plus the Psalm. He said, I'm a Christian, this is very meaningful to me, and I thought it might be meaningful to you. And Penn Juliet said he was so authentic, he was so honest, he was so you know, complimentary, looked him right in the eye and, and was very sensitive about how he said it, that Penn Juliet said, I took the gift, and he said, and I told him, I appreciate this, I really appreciate it. He said, now I want to be really clear, I still don't believe. I don't believe in God, I don't believe in heaven, I don't believe in hell. But he said, but let me tell you something about this guy, he said, he spawned something in me that, that helped me to realize if Christians really believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and they really believe that heaven and hell are real, and they really believe that a person's decision here on earth to accept or reject Jesus determines their eternal destiny, here's the big question. He said, then how bad do you have to hate me to not share the gospel with me? I was like, wow. He said, I still didn't believe this guy, but I had so much respect for someone who lives with a conviction. He really believes in what he believes in, enough to where he would find a way to try to share a message with me because he believes my eternity is based on it. And I thought, that's what the Jesus built the church on. Not that we're coming for a social club, not that we're coming just to feel a little better about ourselves and, and be assured that God's going to help us with all the little mechanics and the challenges of our life. We're built on a revelation that Jesus is the Lord of all, that he's the only way to salvation, that one day that judgment really is coming. You say, Jesus is going to save us from ourselves? Yeah, but listen carefully. Jesus came to save us from God, not a wrathful God. Remember, God so loved the world, but a God who has a job and who steps into the eternal judge's role. And at some point, when, when all of the dies have been cast and this life is over, God will have to, with a broken heart perhaps, but will have to, as the judge of all the earth, sentence millions of people to an eternity without him, an eternity of suffering, because he's a holy God. He's a righteous judge. And Jesus came to save us from the wrath of a righteous God when we get to that point. And if we really believe that, then we ought to be saying, Lord, it's awkward for me and, I, and I'm really struggling here, but you gotta help me to inch out. You gotta help me to, to little by little become a fisher of men. Maybe I'm not, you know, with the bullhorns and the, and the megaphones and maybe I'm not blasting into a public place and, you know, finding six people, but help me to at least know how to give an invite card. Help me to at least know how to give a New Testament. Help me to feel the passion and, and the, the weightiness of people that are lost, who are desperate for Jesus, help me to understand that because I don't. 
And this was such a powerful illustration. Number one, Christ's church is built on a revelation, a real-time understanding. Jesus is alive. You're in a relationship with him if you've accepted him all day long, every day. And I would venture to say we don't treat most people the way we treat him. We don't ignore him and talk to him for maybe two minutes on a Sunday morning once a week. Most people, when they're riding in the car, when we at least acknowledge him there. At least say, hey, thanks for coming with me today. Hey, by the way, we've been going to this meeting and stuff. If you, have any, if you have any tips, any inputs, we'd have conversation. But see, that's too awkward for us. It's weird, mostly because we don't live with a revelation that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and Jesus has been risen from the dead. Here's number two. Jesus told them that, the, that his church was still being built. His church is an ongoing, eternal, it's the longest construction project in the history of mankind. Never, ever stops. In fact, Jesus says, we don't just attend church. The Bible says that we're the living stones. We're, we're the project materials. You know, when the contractor trucks come and dump all the, the wood and the nails and the screws and the, the piping and the electrical wire, and we, we're those. That's who we are. We're the living stones, and Jesus is accessing and using us to build and construct the church. Not only that, Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 says that we're the individual appendages in a living body. So we make up the blood vessels and we make up the muscles and the sinews and, and the bones and the connecting joints and, and we're the oxygen flow. We're, we're all of those things that makes the body of Christ functional. And see, we lose sight of that. We don't realize that we're actually involved in this. We're not just attending a church so we can receive. We are the church. We're on the mission of helping Jesus to build something that is a working model so that other people can come and find their place to get part of, of, of the Great Commission, to be part of the assignment. And that's exactly what Jesus said. In fact, when Jesus told them, I'm going to build a church, they probably looked at him like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Because the word church, the Greek word ekklesia at the time was a totally secular term. It meant an assembly of people who'd rallied around a passionate and common cause and were working feverishly to get a job done. So it'd be like, what happens in our HOAs? What happens in our PTAs? What happens, you know, in some lobbyist group or whatever, and we sign on, put the bumper sticker, you know, save the great white owl in the Alaskan tundra or whatever, whatever it is, right? But it's a group of people that say, boy, that's something I'm passionate about. And they sign on and then they begin talking about it and they begin investing in it and they begin, you know, soliciting for it and they begin working towards it because they believe in that. That's what the disciples heard. And that is, in fact, what Jesus was doing. But for the first time ever, Jesus said, yeah, but I'm going to assemble a group of people that are not really focused just on ethnicity. They're not focused on nationalism. They're not focused on social justice. They're not focused on humanitarian stuff. Maybe those things are values and they come into play, but I'm going to form a new group of people that has rallied around the common cause. And the common cause is that I'm the Christ, the son of the living God. And the common assignment is that they're going into all the world to let as many people know that as possible because this is real. And one day everybody's going to have to stand account. And we don't want to leave anybody behind. We want everybody to experience everything that Jesus has. And not only that, he went on and said, and as long as we stand on this immovable rock solid truth, that Jesus is who he says he is with a revealed knowledge, and as long as we'll be on assignment 
doing the things we're supposed to do to fulfill the Great Commission and help build his church, Jesus went on and said, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Isn't it interesting again that he decided to make that announcement standing on the very, in the very location that the whole pagan world said, yep, that's the gateway to the underworld. Everything that we worship and celebrate, everything that we pay homage to, and they, it brings back blessing to us, it all happens right there. You don't have to be a theologian to make so many connections about the things that we bow down to, the things that we put in, in front of the Lord, the things that, that we pay homage to every week, all week long, thinking that's what's going to bring the finances. That's what's going to bring the contract. That's what's going to bring the approval. That's what's going to bring the notoriety. And Jesus said, no, no, I'm going to build an assembly of people and they're going to recognize there's a whole different flow here. We're in the world, no doubt. We're not of this world. Jesus said, I'm going to build it and people are going to know that I'm the Christ. I'm the redeemer. I'm the salvation. I'm the financer. I'm the healer. I'm the restorer. I'm the one that brings wisdom. And they're going to go walk away with this conviction like Jesus will never, ever fail me. Jesus is all that I need. And I'm going to plant my feet on that. And then I'm just going to make me the best employee, the best business owner, the wisest and smartest friend, because I'll have the wisdom of God by revelation knowledge. I don't know why I know this. But as I'm thinking about it and listening to you and praying for you, I just feel like the Lord wants me to say this. This is how Jesus wants to build the church. And as we begin to stand on that, here's truth number three. The Bible says, as we are standing on the foundation of truth, as we're on mission, letting our lives invest into the kingdom, so we're winning the lost and we're making disciples, num truth number three, Christ's church is invincible. Now listen to me, that was big words. For Jesus to announce to 12 guys uh, who only two of them knew what he was talking about, him and Peter, and Peter had only been briefed for like 30 seconds. He knows something, but he don't know why he knows it, right? And so he's like, yeah, yeah, what Jesus said, yeah. He has no idea. But these guys had no idea that 2,000 years later that we'd still be talking about this. 2,000 years later, we'd still be working as hard as we can to be on mission, We'd still be trying to push against the flesh and our comforts and our convenience and hold these distractions at bay to say, Lord, we want to be in the world. We don't want to be weird and oddballs and nobody can relate to us. We want to be in the world. We just don't want to be of the world. Remember, Paul says we're ambassadors, which means we, we are in a location, but we live in an embassy. And when we're inside that embassy, we live by a whole different set of rules. We're resourced by a different set, different government. We're advised and, and, and given instructions by a whole different commander-in-chief. And we're right in the middle of all the crazy stuff going on on here. We're in it all right, but we're not of it. And this is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. He says, listen, my church is not going to start until after I leave. But once it does, nothing and no one will stop it. And listen, it's not because we haven't tried. Right? Because if you just study through, you don't have to study Christian history. Study secular history. But especially in Christian history, listen to me, everything that could have gone wrong in the church has and continues. If you just look inside of the church, let, let's just narrow it down to, you know, to America, inside of the American church, just in the last five years. And you could probably shorten it to a year, but I'm going I'm to just widen it. Just in the last five years, we've had financial scandals everywhere. 
We've had immorality just everywhere. We've had abuse of power. We've had distorted and distracted messages, misrepresented representations of the gospel and of Jesus, the man and his mission, and the list just goes on and on. That's just from the inside. We've worked as hard as we can to eat ourselves alive. Let's go from the outside, right? The whole global community, ever since the day of Pentecost, the global community has done everything it can to persecute, even put to death anybody who mentions and believes in the name of Jesus. They've certainly come against them politically. They've certainly stripped them down financially. They've humiliated, they've ostracized them. By the way, I mentioned it before, this has not happened in the book of Acts. This is happening right now. Google it. I mean, there are organizations that track this. I'm telling you, what's happening in today's world, the persecution is worse and faster and more widespread than it's ever been in the history of mankind. Not here yet, thank the Lord. But in other countries, it quite literally will cost you everything to say that Jesus is your Savior. But when you think about the alternative... It's almost fitting that it costs you everything because everything is what's at stake. Yeah. Everything. And see, we, we live in this bubble. We, we don't think about this. And yet Jesus said, I'm going to build a church that is, that is on mission, that, that is, is work, the revealed knowledge. This is real. And then a church that's going to be on mission is going to keep building and keep growing and, and bringing other stones and other people into this to help train them up. And if the church is on mission and based on my truth and not watering it down, then the church is going to be invincible. And right about now, as we're coming home, people are going to say, this is good. I get it. I'm being sharpened. What does it have to do with witnessing? And here's your final truth, truth number four. Christ's church is transformational. As in, it's essential to win the lost and bring them in and let them experience what it's like to be in the presence of a living God. See, on one hand, Jesus tells these disciples, he said, I'm going to build a church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But on the other hand, we've already studied, Jesus looks at the disciples and says, I'm going to make you become fishers of men. Well, those two come together because the church are literally where these fishers of men are nurtured and matured and fishing skills are introduced and learned and developed and also where the fishermen gather so as new fish are coming in that the fish have somewhere to learn to become a fisherman. This is the organization. It's not a solo endeavor. It's all of us showing up to work and saying, this is eternity on the line, and this is weighty. This really has relevance. The problem is, for years, at least in the American church, we've got real confused. And the pastors have participated, right? The pastors say, well, yeah, I guess I know that's my job. I'm supposed to preach, and I'm supposed to win the loss, and I'm supposed to you know, find a way to nurture and care for and develop all these people and then train them to fish. And listen to me, not this church, thank the Lord, but so many other churches, the members are happy to let the pastors do it and criticize them every step of the way. Not enough, too much, too slow, too fast, not deep enough, too deep, needs to be shallow. How come it's not funner? How come it's not shorter? How come it's not this? And this is happening in churches all over the place. But that was never what Jesus intended. When that happens, the result is that congregational comfort and happiness becomes the primary goal. It's all about, is that, is that fun? Does that feed me? Am I enjoying this? And that takes precedent over the Great Commission 
over winning the lost and making disciples. And when that happened, all of a sudden fishing dramatically decreases. In fact, it disappears. And that's a problem because even if new fish, new converts happen to come into the church, now there's no experienced fishermen that are leaning into the Great Commission saying, I'll help to mature those people. And the babies are left to themselves. This is happening across churches all over America. Listen carefully, not us. We're learning. We're growing. But I'm telling you, it's happening in churches all over America, and this is not at all what Jesus intended. Let me read you one more scripture, and I promise I'm going to bring it to a quick close. Jesus' intention was, we can see it in 1 John chapter 4, verse 11, but mostly in verse 12. Let me just quickly read it. He says, dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. By the way, both words of love, there is the word agape. It means you can't just have a warm, fuzzy feeling. Love means I'm investing. I'm getting my skin in the game. I can see how much I love somebody about what I'm doing to bring their life to another and a better level. He goes on in verse 12 and he said, here's, here's the big one. No one has ever seen God. But if we love each other actively, investing, then God lives in us and listen to this. And his love has been brought to full expression through us. The reason the church is so, so actively part of witnessing is because it's like this divine puzzle that comes. And as we learn to lean in and plant our feet on the truth that the word of God is, is strong and that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, and we begin demonstrating God's love and we begin engaging this growth process, wanting to be disciples, then the Bible says that Jesus' life and Jesus' love comes working through us and, and literally is experienced in real and tangible and timely way. For the believer, that's wonderful because that means that when the church is functioning like we're supposed to, not perfectly, but authentically, that we become the closest thing to this side of heaven to what it's like to live in the presence of Jesus. This, this is why when we come to church and you feel exhausted and you feel discouraged and you feel stressed and you feel overwhelmed, but we get in the atmosphere and we're singing about the faithfulness of God and we're opening the Bible and the living words of God are penetrating us and we walk away having been encouraged and having been you know, hugged and, and somebody put, shook our hand and said, man, I'm so glad to see you today. And we walk away feeling like, okay, all right, all right, I can do this. Okay, all right, I can do this. It's because it's like what it's like to be in the presence of God. I'm telling you, the church, an active church, is the closest thing we'll experience to heaven until we actually get there. That's not me just putting flowery words to it. That's what the Bible teaches. But for the unbeliever, it's even more incredible. Because the unbeliever can come here and listen to me. When they get in a spiritual environment, where we're not all leaning back, like, come on, you know, pick me up, pick me up. But we're leaning forward because we, we know who we're serving. And we know what our mission is. And we're leaning forward and we're engaging in worship and opening our hearts and declaring who Jesus is. And we're genuinely loving each other and wanting to be part of this growing community and have other people. When they get in that, they may not agree with everything we're saying. They may be like, ah, I don't know if this is fanaticism or not. I don't know if this is kind of weird stuff or not. But let me tell you what, they will not be able to walk away and deny the fact something happens when I'm there. Something's going on. And the Bible says that as we do that, as we continue to demonstrate, yes, we want to plant seeds. Yes, we want to witness and share whenever given opportunity. But when we invite people, you just got to come see what's going on. I don't know how to explain all this. I don't know why I know it, but I'm telling you, my life is being changed. 
and I'm, I'm encouraged and you're asking me how I'm holding it all together. That's how, that's how. It's the word of God and it's the power and the presence of Jesus and it's the love and fellowship of the rest of the believers. That's an extraordinary and an undeniable witness to anybody out there who's wondering, where can I find some kind of hope? Where can I find something that's real? Now I'm gonna finish with this. I promise this is it. I know that it's possible, even with all this good preaching, you guys didn't say amen nearly enough, but, but I'm, I know that you meant it. I can see it in your face, all right? But even in spite of all this good preaching and the scriptural stuff we're going through, it's possible that some people are gonna walk out of every single one of these teachings saying, Pastor, I get it. I hear what you're saying, but I'm just gonna be honest with you. I'm never going to do that, never. I'm not trying to be callous. I'm not trying to be hard. It's just so hard. It's just so weird for me. I'm never, ever going to do that. In fact, I'm not even going to invite anybody to church because I'm going to be honest with you. I don't even want to come half the time. My spouse is making me come. My parents are making me come. My own conscience is making me come. Come on, it's just an hour and a half. You know, you can get through anything. And I don't even want to come. I'm not going to invite anybody else to that. And let me just say something. If that's you this morning, listen to me. You're going to get no condemnation from me. That's not my role. That's a right that God gave you to work out this salvation between you and the Lord. And I just trust the Holy Spirit. He's so gentle and he's so patient. But let me tell you something. He is re, 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 uh, relentless, right? In fact, I'll even say this. If that's you this morning and you've already made up your mind and you've, you've made up your mind since day one and you're going to keep your mind made up, listen to me. It's possible that you found the perfect church because we're not going to make you feel guilty. We're not going to put condemnation on you. But I'll tell you what else we're not going to do. We're not going to stop learning and growing what it's like to be a follower of Christ. We're not going to start learning to stretch and get out of our own comfort zones and let the Holy Spirit do something else. We're not going to stop learning to fish and bring other people in. We're not going to stop learning to engage the gathering place so when we get here, the presence of Jesus literally comes alive and you can feel what it's like to live a Christian life, not perfectly, but we're doing our best to walk through it. And you can feel, man, this is real, God's here. Listen to me, you're at the perfect church because if you stay in that environment, the chances are really, really high that at some point, something's gonna sneak in and you're gonna be infected. And you might surprise yourself in a short period from now saying, yep, I was that person who said, never going to do it. And look at me now. I'm throwing seeds out there. I'm tying branches, sticks, uh, strings on branches and sticking sticks out there. And the Lord's using me. I got to lead somebody to the Lord the other day. I got to encourage somebody. And as I walked away with tears streaming down their face, I thought, thank you. Thank you for helping me. You're in a great place because the rest of us understand that Jesus is who he says he is. That eternity is real that we're on an assignment from the Lord that he's not going to ask us about all the other trophies in our life. He's going to ask us one question. What did you do about kingdom business? And we don't want to go to heaven empty-handed. So we're learning and we're growing. And I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will help you to jump in and learn to grow as well. Don't forget to pick up or at least consider picking up one of these Bolivia initiative cards. And don't forget there are tons of invite cards out there. Pick one up. Even if you don't intend on handing it out, pick one up, pick a few of them up, and then ask the Holy Spirit to help you this week to take that next step. Stand to your feet and let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the word of God that's penetrating. Thank you for such a loving group of people that will open their hearts 
and let you teach them, let you encourage them, let you build them, Lord, at times let you correct. And Lord, I thank you that you're doing that for me as well. Now we put all of this in your hands, Holy Spirit. Jesus promised that he would give us the ability to become a fisher of men. Holy Spirit, you came to reveal who Jesus is and how serious and significant this is. Now with no condemnation, without any guilt, would you warm our hearts? Would you help us to reconsider and transform our minds so that we can begin little by little walking in a revealed knowledge and becoming who you've called us to be? Lord, if there's anybody in here who has not accepted you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that today's the day. Lord, you'd let them find their way up and meet with our altar team today. If there's anybody here who wants to recommit themselves or who wants to prayer to say, I want to step out, Lord, have them uh, encourage them to come and find that agreement in prayer and settle that issue today. Put all of this in your hands and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for more messages. If you like what you're hearing, share it with your friends. For more content from Lakeshore and information on services, check us out at lakeshorecf.com.